You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Vet Chat podcast. And today, my guest is Martin Earls. He has a special interest in rabbits. And I know he's going to share with us some very useful gems. And this is aimed at the general practitioner. And when a bunny lands up on your table, what to do, basic things to keep in mind, and just some general tips to make life easier for you. Hi, Martin. Ah, Good morning there, Sumari. Thanks for having me on your show. Great. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So just give us a little bit of background. Where are you based? What do you do? Uh, well, I'm based in Tauranga over Bay of Plenty. I've been over here most of my life, but been away for a few years in Auckland, but I've been back here since 2000 and mostly working in the mixed practice, which evolved into small animal only. And in the last 18 months, I've been doing more sort of referrals and um, exotic type of pets as my main work. And I've been doing some emergency work as well at a local emergency clinic. Yeah, that's where I am at the moment. But I've had an interest in the unusual pets for about the last 12 years. So I've been slowly working on developing my knowledge and learning all the extra information there is to get to a point where you feel a little bit more comfortable about seeing some of these unusual animals. So hopefully I can help try and make things a little bit smoother for other people. True, true. And so what are some of the interesting patients that you see as an exotics vet? Uh, well, I see a range probably from the three different types of animals. So we've got our little furries, so our rabbits and guinea pigs and, and rats and mice and, and the occasional chinchilla. And that probably makes up about maybe 60 to 70% of my patients. Probably the next one that's most common would be the birds. So there's a whole range of different different types of birds that we get in. So we've got our little parrots and parakeets. They're probably the ones that most people think about when they get one coming through their front door that there's a parrot or a budgie or a cockatiel um, but we do get a few interesting larger ones like macaws and then there's quite a few of the backyard poultry and ducks and geese so we have some of those that come through and then some people have their aviary birds i've got my own little aviary in the backyard and they're interesting in a different way so you got to approach them more like a, a flock or you know a, like you do on some of the farm type of work you know some of the more slightly bizarre and interesting one are the ones that are the scaly type of animals so they're reptiles and bearded dragons and water dragons and blue tongue skinks and leopard geckos so they're probably the ones that I find the most fascinating but we don't see as many of those ones and then a few amphibians frogs and very rare sort of frog but a few axolotls that come in and then we do have a, a few fish keeping clients out there they're a little bit more challenging to get in the clinic but there's a very broad sort of range of different animals that come through the doors that's very interesting and which of those is your favorite well i probably feel the most comfortable with the rabbits because that's probably been the most common one that i've dealt with over the last 10 12 years and so i sort of feel like i probably have got a little bit more of a grasp of what they need to have and yeah they are Definitely a slightly unique sort of species, and so we'll be able to 
talk a little bit more about them and what makes them different and what sort of things we can do to make everyone a little bit more relaxed when they see a rabbit walk through the door. <laughs> That's right. Um, so now focusing on rabbits. Yeah, I get a mix. So the vast majority of the ones that I see are the ones that are more of an indoor rabbit and rather than being the one that's uh, outside and it doesn't get seen very often, which certainly makes it easier to keep track of what's wrong and picking up on any abnormalities, which is definitely mm. very important with the rabbits and, and most of the exotic species. And with rabbits, is it um, similar like many of the other exotic species when they get sick or they don't feel well, that they take a while to show it? So owners might bring them in a little late sometimes? Sometimes. Yeah, occasionally that will happen. Probably not as much as, say, with birds where they definitely hide things a lot more. But certainly with some rabbit problems that they may be losing weight and it's not so obvious if they're not being handled as often. Or they can change relatively quickly from coping okay with them, some sort of disease and, and compensating and then things can change pretty quickly where it looks like there's a problem that's very acute and onset, but it really has been just slowly getting worse over time. Mm -hmm. And um, we probably need to clarify that we are not talking about your general field variety. We're talking here about the Virginian pet rabbits. Um, are there any restrictions on taming like the general wild field rabbits out there? Um, do people do that? Uh, there's occasionally they may have a baby rabbit that they've rescued. And as far as I'm aware, and I may not have all the details, but I think the most important thing is that they're not allowed to be released again and you're not allowed to breed from them. So the vast majority of them are those other sort of breeds that are the pet ones that you know, they're all evolved from the same rabbit. They're all the same species. So that's the unusual part about rabbits is all the rabbits we see are all the same species, even the wild ones, let alone the birds. Virtually every different type of bird is a different species. So it's probably more of a geeky sort of thing to know, but it's, yeah, I find it quite interesting. Yeah, I actually never thought of that. That is very interesting. So all the rabbits are related to the wild European rabbit, which is different to that sort of cottontail type of American species, and hares are different. But otherwise, they're all the same. They're a little bit like dogs, where you've got your huge range of sizes and they're all the same species. Okay, so let's see. Now you have a rabbit on your table. How do you handle that rabbit? I know there are some certain pointers that vets and handlers need to remember. Yeah, well, rabbits are a, they've got a slightly unique sort of skeletal system, so they're designed for speed, and so they do have quite a light skeleton, and their proportion of bone is to the rest of their body is uh, it's only about 8% of their body weight as the skeletons compared to around about 12 or 13% for other animals that we usually see. And so, you know, they can get around very fast. They've got a rather big, big gastrointestinal system and they're very powerful muscles. So they're probably the biggest thing we have to be a bit careful about is how to pick them up and how to handle them. And they've got very powerful hind legs. So, if their back end is not supported very well, if they kick out, then potentially they can injure their spine and they can even fracture their spine. And because they are quite a nervous and a prey sort of species, then a lot of them don't really like being handled, especially by 
unusual people that they're not used to. So having a nice sort of non-slip surface is definitely helpful. Making sure somebody's got their hands on them all the time mm-hmm. because they can definitely be very jumpy. Some of them will be like a spring that bounces off. It's even worthwhile having a look at them on the floor. And so towels are very helpful to wrap them up in them. A lot of vets have heard about bunny burritos. They basically just get the get the towel down flat and bunnies in the middle and then you get, can wrap them up and so you've got a head poking out and, and everything else is kept under control and that sort of helps to make things easier. That's a very good tip. So not really no need for very heavy restraint or anything like that and definitely no dorsal restraint. I mean, certainly we need to remember those sharp nails as well. They can give you a good scratch. Yeah, that's for sure. they probably not quite as bad as a cat, but they can give you some real good rakings along the arm. So you usually know a, a vet that's been seeing rabbits because they're the ones that have got the big scratches up their forearms. Scratches. So <laughs> your hands don't get attacked as much as they do with cats, but they <laughs> can definitely get a good scratching. And you raise a good point about trying not to put them on their back. And so that seems to be one of these techniques which are sometimes used where they're sort of put over on their dorsal on their on their backs there to try and keep them still and it certainly can keep them still but it's now known to be a very stressful position for them and that's why they don't move because they're in an extreme state of stress so we definitely don't encourage that i will modify that somewhat and have them sitting up so supporting underneath their bottom so their back is still upright they're not leaning right over on their back you can examine around their tail base and around the bottom that way and that can help to keep them sort of relatively calm to be able to look around the ventrum and around the bottom and that's definitely some areas that can have some issues especially in the summertime as the Mm. flies like to try and come along and attack bunnies bottoms. Do you find that is diet related? Definitely uh, most of them are hygiene related and diet and insufficient fiber and uh, they can be a bit of a bit of a mess around that area and most of them that's that's just not eating enough fiber and so i think that's one thing that's super complicated by people when it comes to feeding rabbits they're actually a pretty basic sort of species to feed and people make it very complicated by trying to find so many different things to give them and we know that they have evolved living out in the wild and eating things that are very fibrous naturally so in captivity you can get away with 80% 80% or so of their diet being hay and you know, the long sort of fibrous grass that's growing outside, not sort of munching away on the lawn all the time, but eating a lot of hay. And that sort of makes a huge difference and it can help to avoid a whole lot of issues, dental problems mm. and uh, and gut problems. So, yeah, that's mm. certainly an important part of bunnies is keep it basic. Feed them lots of hay or long grass. They can have weeds that are growing in the garden, not everything, but certain things like dandelions and puha, which are very easy to find and they're very, very nutritious for them. And have a small portion of good quality pellets, uh, pellets that have high levels of fiber. So uh, some of the good pet shop brands, things like Burgess and Oxbow from Vets and the Selectives, those are probably the three best ones that we know of around New Zealand and overseas. And they have fiber levels that are over 20 percent and i came across something very interesting when i was doing a little bit of reading up in preparation for this podcast and it said that some fruit tree branches 
are also suitable for rabbits to eat. Do you agree with that? Sure. Um, I found apple, ash tree, birch, hawthorn, hazel, hazelnut, juniper, maple, pear, pine, poplar, rose, spruce, and willow branches. So I don't think we find all of that in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, but can you add that? But that would obviously not be the main part of the diet, but you can chuck it in and they can chew on it as they feel. Sure. And, you know, definitely things like the apple branches, that's one of those common sort of ones that is a very popular sort of branch to chew on. Roses, yep, those are as well, probably not the ones with the thorns on them, uh, but that's a common one. Uh, willow is, no, that's another one and it does have its own sort of natural anti-inflammatory within it as well, which is related to aspirin. So that is something that's often used, but they're really just designed as an enrichment. They're not really designed for trying to help keep the, the teeth wearing down. And that's another one of those unusual sort of things with rabbits there. They have their teeth, which just keep growing forever. And if we don't keep them wearing down, then we start having some problems. So the branches aren't really designed to try and help with the teeth. They're just to give them something to to keep them entertained and, and keep them busy. So they don't really chew on wood to keep their teeth under control. They wear their incisor teeth down against each other. So they the top ones and interact with the bottom ones and they keep each other at the right length there. And that's why they need to have a proper normal occlusion. Because if there's any problems where the bottom teeth either stick out too far or the jaw lengths are abnormal, then we start seeing some pretty gnarly looking problems there where the teeth just poke out and go up their nose and start growing into the side of their lips. So yeah, they can have some pretty horrendous incisor occlusion problems. Um, and some of those, that they, they are congenital and they develop when they're very young and then others happen later because their teeth just are not wearing down properly and they start growing in unusual directions. Some people don't realise that rabbits have back teeth, which they can see the front teeth, but they can't see the back teeth, but they definitely have some some molars and premolars at the back of their mouth as well. Uh, if they don't wear those teeth down, then they will start getting some problems or they'll get gaps between the teeth, which get food stuck in there. Uh, they start to curve excessively. There's a natural curve on the top and the bottom teeth and if they start curving too much then they will start growing either in towards the tongue on the bottom teeth or the upper teeth will start curving out towards their cheeks and so that's where you get these sharp spurs that cut into the tissues and sure you can grind that teeth off to get them more normal but you're never really fixing the issue so yeah you do have to be prepared for lifelong corrections to help just get things back to a more manageable level uh, and those ones that have those really super overgrown incisor teeth would normally recommend to extract those teeth. They can cope with no incisor teeth better than coming back every month to, to trim them back. And we don't really recommend cut them, those incisors, with any clippers or anything that actually cuts them, uh, like a pliers and wire cutters and nail clippers and things. Those are definitely not the recommendations because they cause nasty sort of cracks and fractures that go up under the gum. So we usually use the dental mm -hmm. cutting tools for those and they just make a, a nice tidy job. And then that's a temporary job anyway. So they can be cut off to a nice length, but they'll be back to abnormal again very quickly. Mm -hmm. They're just a extremely fast growing teeth. And incisor extraction, is that major surgery? Uh, it's reasonably major. It's 
certainly manageable and it's much more manageable than it is in other species like guinea pigs and rats which is very difficult but are there special tools that have been developed special elevators and just to follow the curves on those teeth and their upper incisors are almost c-shaped so they've got a very tight curve on them with a a small radius and the, the bottom one's a little bit less so and then if we don't take them out properly and leave a little bit behind then they'll grow back again. Hmm. And how do you perform a dental exam on a rabbit? Do you normally just put your finger in and have a feel around? Do you sedate the rabbit and open that tiny long mouth and have a look in there? What is your initial approach? Uh, so first of all I'll in that consult, that initial consult, you do spend a bit of time looking at the head. So palpating the jaw, first of all. So you want to have a good palpation around that lower jaw and around that mandible. See if you can feel any excessive amounts of bony sort of swellings there. Sometimes you'll feel little wee knobbly bits on the mandible where the teeth have grown too long and they're starting to sort of penetrate through the bone. Also around the, where the upper cheek teeth sit. You have to be a little careful with that. Don't want to push around there too hard at the start because you may be pushing the gums onto some sharp teeth. So I'll have a palpation first, then I'll use a nasal speculum. So I'm not sure that you can even get those very easily anymore, but they're a human nasal speculum. It's like two little paddle blades there. And then I'll use that mm. to examine the cheek teeth inside the mouth, putting those little paddles in between the teeth and the cheek and opening it up and visualizing the teeth that way. And you can see if there's any gross changes in there. Now, sometimes you won't see everything because you can't see the reserved crown. You can't see that part of the tooth, which is sitting in the bone. Uh, and they don't really have roots in their teeth. So that's where they're all growing from is way up in that jaw bone. So I'll have a look that way. I don't really stick my fingers in there because partly they don't fit very well, but they also get ground up into a, into a nice <laughs> mess if you put them in too far. Um, so you can see quite a lot that way, but I'll, I know that we're going to miss some problems unless we sedate or anaesthetize them to look in there properly. And so we generally, if we've got a hint of problems or we see something there, then we want to do some radiographs. And I like to do a proper sort of oral exam under anaesthetic. What do you use to sedate the rabbit? So um, there's a different options there. And Usually if I need to have them asleep enough to look in their mouth, I use a combination with a involves ketamine and I'll often use a metatomidine with that as well. But if it's part of a, a dental procedure, then they will usually have some pre-medication with midazolam and methadone. That's my sort of standard type of approach there. Sometimes if it is just to radiograph them and do something that's non-painful, I might use a sort of a triple combination where I'll do the midazolam or the methadone with the ketamine and the metatomidine at once. And they're relatively lowish doses there. Um, and that way you can have an examination, you can do your radiographs, but then you may need something a little bit more to be able to carry on and do a proper dental. Um, and most of them will need, will need isoflurane as well, just to, to get them to a point that you can open their mouth properly because they've often still got quite a bit of jaw tone. Some people like to use alfaxalone for their standard sort of anesthesias. I do use it occasionally, but for most of these ones, I, I probably won't just because they often will have an apneic stage when you're inducing them with that and they won't stay asleep for long enough. Mm. But yeah, pre-oxygenation is always good. And it's nice to make sure that you've got them oxygenated beforehand. Uh, and then I'll just like to reverse things as soon as I'm finished 
even the midazolam reverse that with the flumazenil as well and that gets them awake a bit faster. So pre-oxygenation, do you use a mask or a cage? Um, we have incubators that are connected to oxygen so we usually will do that. We'll pre-med them, have them in that incubator at a temperature that just keeps their body around about 25 and 30 degrees for that incubator temperature and then we'll have the oxygen in there. Uh, but yeah, mm. once you've got them out, if you are going to give them your intravenous inductions, then you can mask them with the oxygen at the same time. They just don't really like having a mask on their face while they're awake. Or with what I do with the intramuscular dosing, they'll usually just go back into that incubator until they're starting to, to get a little bit sleepy and then I'll get them back out and put the mask on them then. Do you ever intubate them? Uh, I usually will intubate them for any any sort of surgery that's going to take a bit of time. So I usually do for a spay or anything more involved than that. For some dentals, I will, depending on what sort of extractions need to be done. So usually if there's extractions or there's a dental abscess, then I'll intubate them. And there are V-gels available. So there are what we call a supraglottic airway device. Now those can be quite useful for people that aren't comfortable with intubation. Intubation is mm. definitely challenging for rabbits uh, they don't have a very easily accessible larynx so those are definitely another option and uh, the main thing with intubation is having ET tubes that don't have cuffs on them so we don't want to cause any more trauma to the cilia inside the trachea is more than we have to even putting any tube down there will cause some damage I have a different technique to some people some people like to use a blind technique I'd like to see what I'm doing so I can make sure there's no food in the mouth that I'm accidentally putting down into the airways. And we don't need to fast rabbits for anesthesia, but I like to give them maybe up to half an hour with nothing in the cage to eat just to try and clear their mouth out. Yeah, I'll use a laryngoscope and I'll use like a urinary catheter or a feeding tube type of stylet that I put through my ET tube and so I can visualize the Glottis, and then I sort of feed that stylet down first, and then I slide the ET tube over the stylet. So, yeah, mm, this, that's handy. It's tricky, uh, but I found a, a nice technique that somebody had put online, and it's yeah, there is a video that even shows you how to do it. So, once you get happy with it, it's a I think that's a manageable way. Um, some people use a, an otoscope and they'll intubate with that, which I've tried a few times and I've found it very fiddly because you've got such a tiny little opening to look through and the cone wants to keep falling off your otoscope. And often with those dental ones where I'm not extracting, we'll use a mask. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, intravenous induction or maintenance. So what vein do you use for that? Uh, so mostly with rabbits, I'll use the caudal auricular vein or that sort of ear vein that's running down the edge of the ear on the pinna so it's not the one that sort of runs right through the middle of the ear and that's easy one to find but it has an artery that runs right next to it so it's better to stay away from there so I'll usually cannulate that ear vein and then I'll use that for anything I'm putting into them fluids or any IV induction agents so that would be the main one I'd use for that in terms of blood collection I'll normally use the lateral saphenous vein and that's you can take a reasonable volume of blood from that vein so you can get enough to to run bloods it's still a 
a little bit challenging. You have to be slow. You have to try not to put too much suction on there sometimes. So, but I'll use that, and occasionally I'll use a cephalic vein on. And if I've got a little tiny little Netherland dwarf that's got tiny little ears, so yeah, sometimes I'll use the cephalics if they more likely to chew things out if they're awake. So not so bad when you're mm. keeping them under anaesthetic, but when you wake them up, then sometimes they will want to try and chew out anything that's on their front leg. And I know we have to be careful of ear sloughing and phlebitis, and sometimes when using the ear vein. So what do vets need to keep in mind there? So, yeah, we don't really see a problem with phlebitis and, and clots that develop in those ear veins there if we use the actual vein on the edge of the ear because it's really only going to be a problem if you're getting into the artery which runs right up that central part of the pinna. So I've never seen a rabbit that's had any issues with having any sort of ear sloughing at all. I think that's really a problem if you do use that central artery and then you cause a, a clot in there. You may get some little clots in those mm-hmm. peripheral veins that are there. That's really more of an issue just with being able to reuse the veins again. And I have found some of them where I've come back again to redo a dental mm. with one of those follow-up dentals and the ear veins are not as easy to use as they were previously. While we were talking about dentals, I thought of tooth root abscesses. Uh, yeah, so we, we see them definitely uh, and they are mainly secondary to those acquired dental disease problems that have been niggling away for quite some time and then usually have been because there's been something that's managed to get in between the teeth and it's followed track right down the tooth the tooth's gotten too long and that reserve crown or root is penetrating through bone and once it gets through the bone then we get into soft tissues and that's when things start to develop these nasty abscesses And they certainly can be treated, so in most cases we can do something about it. It's when we've got multiple teeth abscess, then that starts to become a little bit more of a problem. So we see them and they are pretty major because you do need to extract those affected teeth uh, and I usually will marsupialize the abscess. And as long as you take the bad tooth out, usually you can treat them, um, but managing it as an open sort of wound rather than trying to close them up. So they may take weeks to a month or two to get them under control but yeah they can definitely come right after that and they can cope pretty well having missing cheek teeth and you think that you take out a tooth say in the bottom and it's still got its opposing tooth at the top you think that that's going to keep growing even more but they do compensate and the the teeth don't grow at the same rate if the opposite one has been extracted and plus they don't just wear one tooth on to one opposite tooth uh, each tooth sort of contacts two teeth. So they have six teeth at the top and five at the bottom. And the way that they eat, you know, each tooth sort of contacts two. And do you also give antibiotics in those cases? Yeah, usually, but it, it's always better if you can get an idea of what particular bacteria that you're dealing with. So they don't really need to be on antibiotics until you've done your surgery anyway so you don't have to be putting them on antibiotics when you know there's an abscess there's no point it's just like any other abscess they usually are are not unwell when they've got these abscesses apart from the pain that it may cause Uh, but they don't generally tend to have high temperatures they're cold abscesses as they say they don't have these very much 
Um, usually they don't have liquid abscesses in rabbits. They're usually quite a thick cottage cheese type of abscess. So they mostly don't feel unwell with them. They usually keep going and surprisingly enough, that's one thing about rabbits. They are pretty sturdy uh, and they cope with a lot before they get to that point where they're not so good. So yeah, some of them have them for weeks and weeks and they're still eating. It probably leads us on to another point about antibiotics and, and rabbits and what we can and what we can't use. And um, Yes, I would like to talk about that. <laughs> and one thing that most vets sort of think about rabbits is that you can give them Batril and that's the main treatment of antibiotic for rabbits because it's relatively mm -hmm. safe. And, mm -hmm. and we do know that rabbits do have a sensitive gastrointestinal tract and they don't tolerate having certain antibiotics that sort of target gram positive bacteria so well. So things like your sort of beta-lactam type of penicillins, which we like to use for our cats and dogs all the time, that's definitely can be a big problem with rabbits. And so, yeah, we are a little restricted. We can't give our oral amoxyl sort of clavulonic type of acid type of combinations like we might want to use, but we can use penicillin in rabbits. So that is one thing that people may be not aware about. You can use injectable penicillin, so not oral, um, but injectable penicillins, and that can be quite a useful one for those dental type of problems. So we're using our sort of you know, procaine penicillin type of ones there, or the benzoyl penicillin. So that type of thing is certainly okay. And your trimethoprim sulfonamide combination can be quite effective too for a lot of rabbits, and, and that's a, a good sort of oral option. Works you know, quite well in most cases, not always, but it can be quite useful uh, and it's easily accessible. We don't want to use some of these other oral ones like clindamycin. Um, there's a little acronym that we know that it's called PLACE and it's things that you've got to be careful about using. The P is the penicillins and that's more your oral penicillins. L is your lincomycin and then some of the other ones are aminoglycosides that you're giving orally. So yeah, a lot of them are oral things we've got to be careful with. Cephalosporins that are given orally. There are some indications for using injectables, but you do need to know which ones are okay. And then things like erythromycin, we're going to avoid as well. So, yeah, there's a definitely a, a few things you have to be careful about. Things like metronidazole can be used, doxycycline can be used as well for certain things. Uh, but yeah, I do have a sensitive GI tract, so we do have to be a little careful, and you're best to to be looking at doses and frequencies of those types of antibiotics to know what to be using. Mm, and okay, so then leading on to dysbiosis and ileus, how do you diagnose it firstly and how treatable is it? I have to say I don't see that very often. A lot of them are more an appropriate diet rather than an appropriate medication. And so getting that diet improved with a decent amount of fiber tends to help quite a lot to get things back to a, a more normal rate and most of them mm -hmm. it's fluids and fiber tends to make a huge difference so most of them I find if they don't have any obstructive process in their intestinal tract a lot of them will do really well with feeding with support feeding so syringe feeding with the critical gear mm -hmm. oxbow critical gear is what I like to use it's a nice high fiber one it does have prebiotics it has certain fibres that help to get the gut population back to its sort of more normal flora and fluids. And rabbits need lots of fluids. So most of them, mm -hmm. it's rehydration. 
it's getting that fiber back into the gut again probably it's those stasis gastrointestinal stasis ones where they need pain relief and most of them have occurred because there's been some sort of change in their intake their appetite's been off for whatever reason whether it's dental related or whether it's some sort of respiratory disease it could be anything like that so that's probably one of those things that not every rabbit that's unwell has got stasis it's mm. probably one that's a little bit sort of overdiagnosed um, and some of them don't have that so i find pain relief fluids feeding makes a huge difference for a lot of them but yeah and so a lot of your general practitioner vets can manage a sick rabbit pretty well as long as you rule them out some sort of intestinal obstruction and most of those are with rabbits they they're just little gerbils they use little tiny little pieces that get lodged in the small intestine and then you're feeling you know the stomach is the main thing if you're going to have a problem in a rabbit is that stomach getting too full so if you can palpate a rabbit's stomach every single time you see a rabbit then know what's going on when that starts to get enlarged I'll have the rabbit facing me and I'll be running with my fingers pointing towards the ground and then I'll run my hands over the chest towards the abdomen and then I'll be sort of trying to get my fingers to touch through the abdomen. Then I can get an idea of what's in there and where the stomach is because the stomach normally is tucked right up underneath the rib cage, and if it starts to bulge out past there and it feels like a little balloon, then we know we might have a problem. Uh, and, yeah, they can be pretty nasty, some of those gastrointestinal obstructions and they're usually either in the duodenum or they're in the you know in the small intestine some of them need surgery and some of them will pass through okay with supportive care we just don't want to be putting more food into a stomach that's already filling up so you've got a distended stomach that's one of the times you don't want to be putting food in there at that time yeah do, do you follow up your clinical exam with radiographs to confirm that diagnosis uh a lot of the time, then that definitely is a good idea. I don't all the time because you can tell when there's a problem usually. And it's a tricky one because you, you can't radiograph them that easily unless they're sedated. So it becomes a priority thing to get them to a point where if they don't have, that's probably the thing I focus on the most is once I know what their heart rate is and their temperatures like and their hydration, because usually when their temperature drops down below 37, and we know with rabbits they're a warmer species than a lot of other mammals, so they they normally are over 38 and a half, and, and up to 40 is pretty normal. But if we start seeing them under 37, and you notice that they've got a pretty delayed skin tint, then that's often what you will get in an acute case as well. So some of these change from looking normal in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they look terrible. If you notice that temperatures drop down like that, then that's to me is a bit of a red flag that you've got something like some sort of intestinal obstruction or you might have something a bit more severe. So that's a pretty good indicator. Temperature's really low, then you've got a bigger problem. And blood glucose is another good sort of tool. So you can do a very basic sort of blood test. So if you go and get your IV catheter in place and you need it for those ones, then you can take that little blood sample and you do a blood glucose. You can do your PCV and your total solids and, and just get a, a baseline. There's some good uh, articles out there that give you some good reference ranges for those. But you know, generally, blood glucose, if it's starting to get up over 20, then we know we've got a higher chance there's some sort of surgical case there. Mm. Most of the ones that have stasis, they are usually closer to 10. So the normal range is, is similar to the cats and dogs. So most of them 
around four to eight. And when they're getting up into the you know, 10, 12, around that level, then they usually will respond better than the ones that are you know, 20 to 30. The higher those levels are, then the prognosis has been shown to be poorer. And pack cell volume, I think that is also quite um, a reliable measure to go on. Yeah, definitely. And sure, most of them will be between 30 and 40. So that's a pretty good general range to keep in mind. And we do see some of them with definitely they've got that hemoconcentration. You've got dehydration there and that's pushing that up higher. So that's a fairly common type of presentation. And then you'll see some of them that are anemic. And so once we start getting those anemic ones, then we start getting a little bit more worried about things like a liver lobe torsion and Rabbits, that's something that we do see from time to time. That's usually one of the lobes on the right side of the liver. So that's another thing to be keeping a feel out for when you're doing that abdominal palpation. If you feel a little sort of knot on the around that sort of right side up in the cranial abdomen, then that's a little bit more of an indicator of a potential liver lobe torsion. You can treat them. They are definitely challenging, um, but mm. they will often bleed because of those so you'll often get that pcv dropping down in those cases there Mm. and the other ones where that pcv will common sort of causes when you've got a caliche virus infection and and those ones are uh, the other ones that drop off really quickly so those are those Mm. acute cases that come in and looking terrible and we do need to be pretty careful with being aware of those because as soon as that's the case then you've got a contagious patient that you do need to be careful about if you are going to try and hospitalise them and treat them. Usually we find with that type of infection, it will affect the liver as well. And calcium is one of those that vets probably know that they need to remember that it is higher in um, rabbits than what you see in cats and dogs. Yeah, that's for sure. And rabbits are a little peculiar with how they deal with calcium. They usually live on a very high calcium diet and they get rid of most of their calcium through their kidneys. So they generally have a one and a half times to twice the level of calcium that most other species tend to have in their blood. And you'll often notice with their urine that there'll be a lot of this white chalky type of substance coming out. Some owners notice it and they think, well, that's pretty weird. Um, But that's pretty normal for them. It's the ones that don't have that coming out that have got very clear urine that's usually more of a problem. Um, and that can be an indicator that you've got kidney disease in some of them, but it can also be in a younger rabbit that's growing, it needs more calcium, so they're not going to pee out as much calcium. So if they're lactating, they need that higher calcium level. So we do want to be a little careful with diet that we're not using the lucerne hay as a regular type of hay because it is higher in calcium as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing with urine is that you do get pigments in urine sometimes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you may notice that they've got a sort of orangey coloured urine and it's not necessarily blood. So it's quite a useful one to be aware of. It does tend to look, I think it looks a little bit more rusty rather than red. Uh, but yeah, do a dipstick there, check to see if there's blood in there. That's a pretty good way of finding out for sure. Or have a look under the microscope and see if you've got any red cells there. Um, okay, Martin, you mentioned Glissive virus there. Tell me about vaccinations of rabbits in New Zealand. Okay, so we no, we've traditionally had vaccine, the Silac vaccine, and that's been 
here for a couple of decades since we first had the original Kaliti virus released. So that was brought in. And then more recently, they found that there is a, a second strain of that particular virus that's been somehow got into the population. And it Silap's not that effective. So in the last few years, um, been importing the Filovac vaccine, which has come into the country from France. So we're using that one or recommending that one now as the, the main vaccine against Kaliti virus. And it's sort of recommended for over 10 weeks of age, but now some of them at less than 10 weeks are definitely at risk, especially if their mother hasn't been vaccinated. So it tends to be pretty effective. I don't know that it's 100%. From what I've seen, I've still seen some of them which haven't managed to survive even when they have had that vaccine, but I think it's our best sort of chance of trying to protect them. It should really have an annual booster as well, just to keep on top of things. Uh, The good thing about that particular vaccine is it comes in a single dose vials. Um, The old Silab came in a 10 mil vial and you really was supposed to use all of that 10 mils once you'd opened the bottle, uh, use it all mm-hmm. in the same day. And that became quite challenging, having enough patients to be able to, to do all on the same day. So this way we can just do them <laughs> as we need. The only thing that's a little bit of a problem is that it's a little harder to get in. There are often delays with it coming in from overseas. So we're currently waiting for the next batch to arrive from France. Um, So, yeah, we have had a few times where it's been unavailable. And I think just to mention for our vet listeners who don't treat rabbits that often, the Khaleesi virus is um, rabbit hemorrhagic virus. That's the layman's term for that one. And myxomatosis, do we have it here in New Zealand? No, so that's one thing we're lucky enough not to have. Okay. Okay, cool. When you're doing your vaccination, then you probably want to have a dissecting conversation with the owner as well. And one thing that I didn't know is that they can become pregnant within hours of giving birth. Yeah, and they have a very short gestation period as well. So you can get your doe starting to breed from, you know, fairies. So sometimes they're five months, six months, seven months, around about that sort of age. But the gestation period is only around about a month. So, yeah, they can become pregnant soon after that so you can end up with a you know 10 to 12 litters a year of maybe five at a time so they can see why it's said that they breed like rabbits because they definitely do produce a huge number of of young and you can see why in the wild especially down places like central otago that they are a bit of a problem in in a wild situation so what we generally recommend is that the males are done as soon as the testes are there, and that's usually when they're around about three months of age. Get them done early, but we also recommend that the females are all spayed as well. And that's not just because of breeding. There is a pretty high percentage of them that will develop uterine cancer, and once they get over sort of four to five years of age, that risk becomes higher and higher. Some studies have shown that 80% or so of them, when they're about five or six years of age, will start to develop some uterine adenocarcinoma changes Mm. there. So it's not just for preventing breeding. And once they are getting to that age where they start to show signs or they're at risk of signs, then they're a little older and it becomes a little bit more 
of a risk to be spaying them then. So I generally recommend when they're around about seven months of age. Some people will do them younger, but yeah, occasionally you'll get trapped by one that hasn't really developed very well and you are having great fun trying to find a very immature uterus that can be very challenging. So however they start showing behavioural signs that they're in puberty and they're getting a little bit more aggressive towards their mates or I just say well let's do them around about seven months but say so, yeah, I will do them a bit younger if they're showing those behavioral changes I mean they do have a slightly different anatomy so yeah it does pay to have a little read up about what you are doing um, they have very long ducts that go between the ovaries and the uterus are big long oviducts that are extremely long of fallopian tubes mm-hmm. so sometimes you think you've got everything and you haven't like sometimes probably about three centimeters or four centimeters long these fallopian tubes and they have to have a, a dual sort of cervix so they have two surfaces next to each other so they're yeah that, that's a couple of things that are a little bit different but otherwise they do look sort of similar to a cat i suppose they're you know, a cat or a dog they're a similar anatomy yeah, yeah. And then in bucks, we will mostly do it just because of behavioral reasons. There's no real health reason to castrate the bucks, are there? Uh, well, they do still develop cancer as well. So we do get some testicular tumors. And I have had probably four or five of them that I've seen. And so that is mm. probably one good reason. They're not certainly as risky or as nasty as some of those other sort of cancers that are around. And they're slower to cause any other problems. but definitely more important from the behavioral side of things and as we're talking about desexing and probably we want to have a brief discussion about what sort of combination of rabbits is good and the general recommendation is having a desexed male and a desexed female is the best combination they usually get on better rather than two males especially two unneutered males that's a recipe for trying to castrate each other because sometimes they do like sort of ripping things open and that does happen quite often wow and even the two females together they can sometimes have some behavioral issues as well so the sort of least likely combination of having problems is that sort of male and female that are both desexed yeah and the castration method that's a closed method Am I right? Uh, well, I do a, a sort of modified version of that, and there are different ways of doing it. So, you know, one thing unusual about rabbits is they're like marsupials, and the males, their anatomy is a little different because the penis is sort of sitting in a position that's behind or caudal to the testes. So, you can just go straight into a pre scrotal approach and, and take them both through there, and there's no penis anywhere near it. I usually just do a scrotal technique and and I don't really use any sutures in the skin afterwards. So I use a tissue glue to help glue the skin back together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll do a modified sort of open technique. So I will do it individual testes and take the whole testes out through the open technique. But then I'll close up that tunic afterwards and I'll mm-hmm. lig- ligate that off just to reduce the chances that they may herniate through that incision. And that's a, probably more of a theoretical risk and it's not necessarily going to happen. But I just let's make it safer so generally with rabbits we want to avoid those braided sutures if we can do just to reduce the chance of having infection and the other thing is we just want to use no cat gut so that's a definite no-no with rabbits remind me again why 
mainly because of the reaction that it causes and adhesions. It's been so interesting hearing all this rabbit information and a great refresher for myself. I would just like to talk about parasites briefly. Do you need to treat internal parasites in rabbits ever? Not generally worms. So we don't see worms as a problem that often, but sometimes. So you don't normally have to do it as a routine sort of thing. It's mostly those cases where you've got a lot of rabbits in a small area that seem to be the ones most at risk. So it pays to check if you're noticing any problems, especially in younger rabbits or where you're breeding situation and they're in the same sort of area that are more likely to become contaminated. Probably more of a potential problem are the coccidia. We do see that as a reasonably common sort of problem in those younger bunnies. But similar, you know, whether they come from a breeding sort of situation there, there's more of a risk. So it's worthwhile if you're noticing that somebody's not growing very well or they're a little bit thinner or the appetite's a little bit a little bit down, then it's best to get a fecal sample checked out. And they're pretty easy to find. You don't have to be sending them away to an external lab to, to check that out. You can quite easily find them yourself in a small fecal sample. Okay, and external parasites, why do you use generally to control those? It's probably fleas and mites. Yeah, and fleas are more of a passenger with rabbits. They're not really a big problem where they actually have them and they, the fleas are a big problem. You know, you've got to have other animals normally for that to be a problem with them, so cats and dogs that you're not treating. One thing you can't use for rabbits is frontline, so don't use your piperinol because that's a nasty one for rabbits and it can kill them. But Advantage or imidacloprid, that's licensed for rabbits, and that would be okay to treat fleas. not really going to treat anything else, and it doesn't last very long, so you probably get a week out of it for rabbits. So the other thing that's used a lot of is celamectin, and that can be used for fleas and for mice. They can get fermites. Fermites and rabbits are generally not a major problem, but the Kaletiella mite, which causes sort of more like this dandruff type of picture, that's generally a problem with hygiene where they're not grooming themselves very well. But you can use your celamectin for that as well. And I use a higher dose than what's recommended on the label for them. Um, that's generally recommended that you're giving it's probably more two to three times the label dose for cats and dogs or rabbits. So most of them I'm not using the same dose for a rabbit as I'm using for a cat. So, you know, there's a little bit off-label when it comes to that. I think a lot is off-label in rabbits. Yeah, most is (laughs) off-label. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of things are, that's for sure. Uh, There's even some studies now where they've shown that people are using Fluralana, the Brevecto type of treatments for rabbits as well. So that's a a newer one. It's still, there's some some work out there showing that it can work really well for some of these mite problems there, but it's the yeah, same thing off-label. There hasn't been a lot written about or sh- on the use of the topical ones there, and then maybe using the oral ones, which is a little bit more challenging considering they come in these sort of meaty type of chews. Well, Martin, I think we will have to stop there. If any vets ever wanted to discuss any cases with you, would you be happy for them to contact you? Yes, that's fine. And they can certainly find me. I've got my own sort of website set up there, the Taronga Exotic Vet. So they can look me up on there and I'll have contact details on there. If they have any questions, then they can certainly ask and we'd be quite happy to see some cases come through if they've got any tricky ones that they'd like to send to us. And I'm based at the referral centre, which is at the Bay After Hours Vet Zone over in Taronga. Great. Yeah, I think you are a very handy contact to have on every vet's phone. So I hope that this will generate 
some inquiries and especially um, yeah, some interest around rabbits and provide vets with some of that confidence that they need in private practice, at least to make initial diagnosis and give some symptomatic and supportive treatment to these rabbit cases that they might encounter. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Vet Chat NZ, proudly brought to you by Verbeck with the support of the NZVA. If you've made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email feedback at verbeck.co.nz or call 0800 Verbeck.